Hi, I'm Richard Niles. The Memphis horns were at the center of the very sound of American soul music, from Stax and beyond. Wayne Jackson and Andrew Love played on iconic hits by Wilson Pickett, like Land of a Thousand Dances and In the Midnight Hour, Sam and Dave's Soul Man, Aretha Franklin's Respect, and tracks by Otis Redding, Isaac Hayes, Al Green, Elvis Presley, Neil Diamond and James Taylor, Steve Winwood's Roll With It, U2's Angel of Harlem, and Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer. They toured with Rod Stewart, the Doobie Brothers, and Stephen Sills. Jackson and Love became the Memphis Horns in 1969, recording with Sting, Billy Joel, Bonnie Raitt, Neil Young, Jack White, Joe Cocker, Jimmy Buffett, and Robert Cray, B.B. King, Mark Knopfler, Buddy Guy, and Alicia Keys. I did this interview for my 2003 BBC series, The History of Pop Arranging, which later became my book, The Invisible Artist. Enjoy hearing this rare interview with the great Wayne Jackson about the rootin' tootin' Memphis horns. Radio I've had great conversations with Jerry Wexler about working in the studio uh, with you guys. Um, and you know, I'd really like to know your working method uh, when you'd go into the studio. I mean, I'd like I, I know that you worked out a lot of the arrangements in the studio, and I'd also like to know, like, when you did that, who was, you know, who was really writing out parts, because sometimes you had larger sections. Well, so let me begin by saying that most of the recordings that uh, Andrew and I have done, whether it's been with uh, three or four other horn players or whether it's just the two of us, are spontaneous, and uh, we almost never write anything out. We uh, feel that a little fear is a good thing, <laughs> put you on up on edge a little more, mm -hmm. and the very act of writing something out and then reading that uh, takes away from the interpretation, if you know, if you know what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. So our technique these days, and it has been, we learned this through Jerry and Aretha Morden and Tom Dowd at Atlantic Records when we were very young, and uh, was to uh, get on the floor and work out pieces of a song as it comes by, and uh, record that piece instead of trying to uh, learn the whole song I wrote. We typically will sit down and Andrew and I in our little chairs and begin listening to the song on the headphones, and something may hit one of us a, a line or a place to put a pad or a chord, and we stop. We stop right then and say what that is, and he and I will learn that little piece, whether it's whether it's my idea or Andrew's idea or whether it's something from the control room, from the producer. We'll stop right then, learn it, we'll cut a track with a trumpet and saxophone, and then we'll stack that to a second track, another trumpet and saxophone, and there's probably that track will probably be where the harmony parts are. And then uh, the way we've been doing it for the last 15 years is I'll put trombone on the third track, usually on the root, so you have a low root and a high root and two uh, harmony parts, <laughs> root and two and harmony parts <laughs> on the second track. And that's kind of our technique these days, and it's fast because as we, uh, when we reach the end of the song, we're through with the song. Yep. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, y y that's how you're working now, but now, uh, in the old days, especially in, in the days when you didn't have overdubbing, how did you work then? Well... We were all in the studio at the same time. Uh, it would be Otis Redding, Booger T and the MGs, myself, Andrew, and Floyd Newman. We were the we were the marquee horns at that time, 
And uh, that's where we grew up at Staxon for 10 years. We were there on that, what we call the killing floor every day. And um, let's just say Otis came in with a song. And Otis was a real genuine genius. He would have all the music in his head. And he would take his little guitar, which was tuned to E, which means he could just make a bar chord with one finger and play up and down the neck. He would go over to Duck Dunn and tell Duck, I want you to play this, boom, to boom, boom, to boom, boom, boom on the bass. Tell Al Jackson, you know, the beat ought to be this, you know. And uh, Steve Cropper was a very innovative rhythm guitar player. He came up with most all of the guitar licks and the rhythm parts. And then he would come over and get in front of me and uh, Andrew and Floyd and say, and you guys, and he would be so full of fire that he would just smoke us, you know. We'd just be over there jumping up and down like chickens on a hot plate. And uh, when everybody had learned the song, Otis would go back to the microphone and they'd roll it and uh, we'd, we'd take it. And we'd take it for like five takes. And if we didn't get five takes, we'd maybe go on to another song and come back to that later because we all believed that if you were going to get a spontaneity and magic, take it'd be within the fifth take. And that's how it ran. If it was Wilson Pickett, Wilson didn't have as much uh, musical input, uh, but he and Steve Cropper, maybe myself, would have been up all night uh, working out horn parts, and uh, he and Wilson would be writing a song, six, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine, and I would be coming up with horn parts, and they would be singing horn parts, and that collaboration would go on all night till the next morning. We'd be in the studio around 11 o'clock, and people would show up, and we'd cut it. In those days, it was a, it was a wonderful feeling to be in a musical situation, although we didn't realize, we thought that's the way it was, was and would always be, that uh, we could write a song at night, and shave and get a nap and go cut it, and it would be out in 30 days. But that is not <laughs> reality in today's music business, but uh, it certainly was in those days, and it worked very well for us. Yeah, especially on, like, for instance, on, on the Wilson Pickett tracks, which I, I believe was the first time that uh, Jerry Wexler came down to, to work with you guys. I mean, how many horns were actually used on that record? Was it just you, you two, or was it the whole, was it two tenors, two trombones, Barry and trumpet? How big was the group you were using? Well, it was never that big. Okay. It was either my, uh, Floyd Newman and myself were the original two horn players, uh, and then Andrew came in '64. So we had uh, Floyd Newman, myself, and Andrew Love, and that was a basic section. Uh, Floyd Newman was going to school to be a school teacher and when he graduated and began to teach school sometime he wouldn't be there and Joe Arnold would come in there would be two tenors Joe Arnold Andrew Love and myself on trumpet and then sometimes later later on Bo Legs Miller would come so we'd have two trumpets two tenors and then if we had uh, Floyd Newman would have five horns but that was a big horn section generally speaking we had three guys over there making records with everybody so, so because it was only three guys, it was it was quite easy to be uh, flexible and and spontaneous. We didn't have a whole lot of people, who, and that's also a reason the horn parts were as simple as they were. We wrote stuff we could remember. <laughs> 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 I just was listening to some instrumentals. Uh, my wife and I ride along listening to a, a CD full of instrumentals you don't hear much anymore. Coffee cup and uh, one with the sugar and bunch of obscure marquee cuts and, and it struck me how simple they were how simplistic they were they were just a good groove and a horn line and someone played a solo and that was an instrumental in fact we're going to kansas city to play on the prairie home companion show in june with garrison keeler and they want some new things from us 
since we played with them last year, we played our marquee hits. They want some new stuff. We're going to do 2075 from Willie Mitchell and The Crawl from Willie Mitchell. And they are both so simplistic, you can't believe it. That's why we have the confidence to say, yeah, we'll come up and do new stuff with your band. It's just a lick and a solo. And that's that's what it com- you know, is comprised of, really. When you were working with Arif, for instance, he's he's no slouch as an arranger. Uh, nope. w- would he come out with a few ideas and then and then you'd you'd use those? And yeah, you know, Arif would write the parts out. So we would we would go on a session with Arif Mardin and and the, and the things would be written. Although uh, I must say, for Arif, to Arif's credit and Jerry Wexler's too and Tom Dowds, if one of us we were all young, uh, full of pepper. If one of us had an idea that came to us, we'd stop and say, you know, why don't we do this? And they would always invariably say, yes, let's try that. Or a reef may have an addition to it, say, this line I wrote at letter B is great, but let's add this. Mm-hmm. Or let's take this away and put in that. And so even though the parts were written, it was really a fluid thing. It just flowed between us, and that's why it worked so well. Yeah, that's what Jerry Wexler was saying, and he was, of course, uh, very complimentary to you guys in saying how how inventive and how receptive you were to that way of working, and he really enjoyed that. It's fun for everybody. You get the idea that your your uh, heart is valuable to someone. Absolutely. Well, it was valuable to a hell of a lot of people. Now, Bolegs Miller, his name comes up on a lot of records as an arranger. Yeah, Andrew and I learned a lot from Bolegs. Bolegs started taking Andrew and I to Muscle Shoals uh, with him to be his horn section. I don't even know the year, but uh, we did Jimmy Hughes and I, I don't know so many artists. I can't. I should have a list with me here, but I don't. Uh, and he also arranged over at Willie Mitchell's place, and we learned from Bolegs, and but and we were all a part of the Bolegs scheme of things. And the Willie Mitchell scheme of things, and we became we became that too. And that is, when you listen to a, a song, whether you've been involved in the writing of that song or whether you're just involved in the musical aspect of holding the song up with music, what moves you is what you do. Without any philosophical innuendos into what you're trying to play, it just comes from your heart and from your soul. And uh, in, in Memphis Horns 101, I write. Whatever comes to your mind, the further from left field it comes, the better it is. Just play it, and don't worry about if it's funny or not funny or dramatic or not dramatic. Just do it. And usually, you'll have something that will add to the song, will add to the musical aspect of the song. So you'll become a part of the song and not just a part of the background. That's a very important difference to uh, get into your head if you're a young horn arranger. You're either a part of the song or you're a part of the background, and you have to... You have to get that in your head. Absolutely. Another thing that's uh, significant about the Memphis horn sound, of course, is the way you guys phrase together. Yes, and that only comes from uh, from experience, and experience is one day at a time. And Andrew and I have been doing it one day at a time since 1964. So uh, if I wake up at 4.30 in the morning with a headache, I know he's awake at 4.30 in the morning with a headache. It's <laughs> as simple as that. And there are, there are many, many other aspects of our life I won't go into that I can guarantee you if I'm having a good time, he is. It's just that way. And we, uh, when we're on the road, we breathe together, we eat together, we think together. It's a, it's really a wonderful thing to get that close to another human being. And, and one way to do that is in a musical situation because it requires your heart and your mind and, and your spirit. All have to be tied together. 
Absolutely. Just on the phrasing again, though, it, it seems to me that you had a phrasing which was something that you hadn't heard on records before, because most of the groups, I mean, even, even James Brown's horn section, you know, their phrasing came from directly from jazz phrasing, really. Whereas you guys, it was more of a kind of a powerful thing, the way you phrased together, and also uh, the way you played short notes, exactly the same shortness. And uh, there was a kind of a different place that that phrasing came from musically. Well, that's true. Uh, I'm not a jazz player. Andrew is really not a jazz player, although he is more than I am. I am a guy who loved Dixieland, and I like pop music, country music. Andrew even likes country music. We sing everything before we play it, and that's one key to uh, phrasing with the horns. You have to breathe the same to sing the same, and the intensity of the singing translates into the precision with which you play the horns together. And so that's kind of where that comes from. Um, I think I know what you're talking about. I never, I never wanted to be a Miles Davis. I liked uh, Louis Armstrong much better. And Andrew is more of a jazz player. But neither one of us ever got hooked into that. We never got hooked into wanting to go out in the club and impress musicians. We wanted to be in the studio and impress the producer and the artist and impress ourselves into the music and be useful that way. And also, Otis Redding was a great teacher of rhythm. He was so rhythmic with his horn lines and that kind of stuff. And it had to be very precise. And uh, we didn't have anything pulling us away from ourselves. No one said, no, phrase it this way, no, phrase it that way. We phrased it just like Otis sang it. We sang it together, we played it together. And and it's just over the years, it's evolved to where we played that, 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 that. Or da, 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 da. We, we play that so close it sounds like one horn. And that's what people always say. You guys sound like one big old horn. And we do. Our, our tones have always matched up. Uh, I have a real airy, wide sound, and Andrew does too. And Andrew's wide, airy sound goes all the way up the top of his horn and all the way down the bottom. And fortunately, mine does too. So we had that as a God-given gift when we first began to play together. It was obvious that we had a sound. Sort of like the Everly Brothers, a sibling sort of a sound, and you can't you, you can't develop that. That just has to be there, friends. And so if if you want to see a trumpet player and you're looking for a saxophone player to be your buddy, the thing you have to remember is that his tone and your tone have to really spread on like peanut butter on light bread. It just has to be smooth and thick and gummy. Hello. Yes, absolutely. I I love that image, and I've always been a big fan of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So <laughs> me too. I, I'm I'm there with you right on that, especially toasted. I like it. Uh, <laughs> I've heard this before that Otis Redding was very influential in coming up with horn lines. When you worked with Aretha Franklin, uh, I know that she's you know a very fine musician. Did she come up with stuff? You know, I don't remember. I don't remember Aretha coming up with horn lines actually. Um, but she is a wonderful piano player and a total musician, no doubt about that. However, I remember that um, seemed like a reef and Tom Dowd did most of the horn lines, and that we did a lot of the horn lines too, in in collaboration. And as time went by, we Andrew and I got better and better at it. Of course, Charlie Chalmers played with us too. He was a wonderful spontaneous saxophone soloist. And he, he was good with horn lines. So we had a great, a, a lot of great young guys who were full of energy and uh, full of a need to be involved in this music. And so we spread ourselves on real thick. 
And um, <laughs> yeah, sure, absolutely. <laughs> well, you certainly did. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's great. Uh, what was it like working with King Curtis? Oh, we were in love with King Curtis, and he loved Andrew loved saxophone playing, so it was a real love thing with him. You know what, King Curtis? There's only one King Curtis. I don't think there'll ever be another one, although I always thought that Andrew could have stepped in to his shoes. Um, he was a consummate rock and roll saxophone player. That's the way I thought of him. Big old good guy who loved us, and we loved him. So when we were together, we really enjoyed ourselves. And as far as coming up with ideas, again, it was just an exchange between him and you? It was the Olympics. <laughs> the Olympic Tricathlon of Horns. <laughs> We, we just about fist fight over whose line was going to be next because he liked us. You know, we, it wasn't like we were trying to please Jerry Wexler or Tom Dowd or Reza Franklin. This was King Curtis, the greatest saxophone player in the world, we thought. And, and so uh, to get a line on him, to be able to say later, hey, man, that's my lick. What do you think about that? That's great, isn't it? And then the next guy would say, yeah, but the next one's my lick. And the next one's King Curtis's lick. It was just a free-for-all of love and music. What can I tell you, man? It sounds great. Another thing Jerry Wexler said that he thought was interesting about you guys is that sometimes you'd put the saxophone above the trumpet. Now, I was trying to find some examples of that. You mean in the... In other words, in the voicing. that the, In other words, it would be sax lead and then the trumpet under it for, for some things. No, he, no, no. Uh, the trumpet was always on the one. So was the baritone. But the tenor parts would be above the trumpet. In other words, the harmonies would begin with the first tenor being on the third of a chord, and the next tenor play, player probably on the fifth of the chord. But the trumpet was always on the one. Okay, because he had said that to me, and I was trying to find examples of that, and I couldn't find any, so you've cleared that up uh, for me. Yeah, because... no, I'm pretty sure he meant that the saxophone was only higher in the, in the chord. Any, any uh, memories of working with Al Green? Over at Willie Mitchell's studio, High Records, it was a, it was a whole other little world over there. Uh, the Hodge brothers were the rhythm section, and then Willie got some of our ideas about horns are like salt and pepper. They're just supposed to make the thing taste better, uh, not all over it. So, And Willie had some jazz. He wasn't more of a jazz trumpet player when he was coming up. He was a trumpet player. And uh, so that's why you'll hear sixes in uh, in Al Green's records and... and uh, some of the other records that we did too. He liked the seven, six, nine combinations with the one and the baritone and the trumpet and a third and a saxophone and a possibly a six over that and maybe a seven too. So the chords were really opened up. Dun, 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 dun. You know, he would do a phrase like that, but it wouldn't just be straight like we would probably do at stacks. It would be spread out into a sort of a jazz harmony. So he was really good at that. So he would write that out or he'd just sing you the parts? No, would all go in the control room, and he would say, <laughs> he was just got this little crazy little voice, and he would sing all the parts to us, and while we weren't laughing, we'd go out on the floor and play it, and it would be great. <laughs> you know, there's something to be said for the fact that uh, the whole scene down there, um, both at his studio and, and with Stax, it was a combination of black and white musicians. That's correct. It was always a multiracial situation. And at, and, and you, at Stacks, it was about half and half, actually, just about half and half on the floor, where we were, you know, the musicians. And over at High, it was a little bit more. Uh, all the, the, the Hodges brothers were black guys. In the horn section, with uh, me and Andrew, let's see, would be two white guys and two black guys usually. And over at Stacks, uh, me and two black guys with the horns. 
And w- do you think that that's a reason why the music was so uh, accepted by the public? No, the public didn't know we were white. No, I don't mean that. I just mean the fact that the, the music that came out was a combination of ideas. And one of the one of the big points uh, Wexer was always making is that it was a great collaboration without any racial barriers at all. Well, that's exactly right. It was a great collaboration, and the only race we worried about was how quick we got to the bank with the money. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true musician. Thank you. Yes, sir. <laughs> now, race was never a problem at Stacks until Martin Luther King was killed. So let's don't get into politics, okay? No, not me. <laughs> not me. But uh, uh, the truth of it is that I don't think that the public was aware of, of the white and black mix of things there. If the music were colored somewhat by the white people being there, me being a pop sort of a guy and a Dixieland sort of a guy and uh, Floyd Newman was definitely a jazz a baritone player of the highest quality. Andrew Love um, as a different sort of guy. Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper and myself were on the original marquees together. And so we, we uh, did Chuck Jackson and uh, blues, blues stuff and Chuck Berry and uh, Fats Domino. I mean, you know, that's what we did as kids coming up. And then we had our own hit record last night in 1961. And so we were definitely influenced by the black music of the day, R&B music on the radio. Um, and still, I would go play my trumpet on uh, country stuff at the same time, and I would have just as much fun. But I don't think it had much to do with how the public accepted those records. They accepted those records because they were flat good music, good dance music, great singers. I mean, how can you not love Otis Redding, no matter who you are, Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave? Everybody in the world loved that stuff. And, but I'm certain that it wasn't because we were white and black. Okay. I've got just enough time to get a quick comment about working with you, too. <laughs> I stood right next to Bono for all afternoon. He was a fairly decent guy. Hey, I guess he spoke six or eight words to me uh, that day. And uh, the studio was jammed with the lights and camera. And, and uh, Jack Clements with his uh, sh- uh, silver chalice and his joint stuck in his mouth and... It was really a fun afternoon, what can I tell you? We did uh, Angel of Harlem that day, and I get interviewed about you 2 this and you 2 that. You know, I was only with them like four or five hours, maybe six or something. It's a lot of fun. I, they're, they're really sweet people. That's what I can tell you about them. And once again, you guys came up with all the, all the horn yeah. lines. Yes, yeah. we did. We sat right there and, and conjured up that stuff. That's a very good expression, conjured up. Yeah, it's true. It's conjured up. It's sort of like witchcraft. Sometimes I don't know where it comes from. It just comes from way out in left field, and you open up. You know, it's, it's like I'm a, almost to, uh, have telepathy, uh, especially with Andrew, because my mind is open, and my heart is open to whatever God sends through, through there for me to play on people's records. Uh, and who knows what side of the coin it comes from sometimes. Uh, sometimes it feels pretty evil. I don't know where it comes from, but I'm open. And so I'm open to everyone's thought process. If I'm with people, I have definite feelings about what they're feeling. It's called empathy, and I'm a master of empathy. Absolutely right, and that's quite obvious from all the people who've loved your music for so many years. Yeah, we love them. It's been a love affair this whole time with me. I came from a little, I was raised at the edge of a cotton patch, and my mother gave me a trumpet when I was 11, and I loved it more than I loved trying to play football with some guys that were much bigger than me on the block. And I played at a rodeo when I was 16. They paid me $36 a day. And I was making uh, $18 a week at the grocery store, and I never looked back. I, I, I compared those two figures, $18 a week and $36 a day. And I said, hmm, 
Now let's see here. What would I rather be doing when I'm 50? <laughs> Sacking groceries or making this much money? So I, that's what I've been. I've been in love with the whole process. Uh, I love show business and I love entertainers. I like makeup and clothes. I like the Halloween is a good time for me. I, I put on my cape <laughs> and my top hat and my white face and I go out and have a good time. If I were to ask you the most fun session you ever did, what would you say to me? Making my CD-ROM last year. It was four months of the most excruciating pain and humiliation I've ever gone through. And we've come out with the best product I've ever had. It's a CD-ROM that's coming out on the Ilio Corporation June the 10th. You can go to www.timespace.com and see all about it. And I hope that you will. And that's my commercial for this radio space. Thank you. you, you <laughs> now I'll get back to your question. <laughs> Good. You know, I've been lucky. I've been over 300 number one records in my life, and uh, that means that I worked with a lot of great artists and a lot of a lot of great teams. And I would I have to say that possibly the Doobie Brothers back in the 70s. Tommy Johnson was was the lead singer of the Doobie Brothers was a big Otis Redding fan. He wanted us to be on his record, so he called me. And we went to L.A. and did uh, Old Vices Turn to Habits, and Eyes of Silver was the first song we did with him. And I remember that they picked us up at the airport in long white limousine, and they deposited us at the Continental Hyatt House, and we had complete run of the joint. And then we worked at the finest studios in L.A., and uh, it was like, good Lord, we've made the big time. I mean, you know, we're here, man. They, and they paid us like a new Lincoln a week and uh, to be on the road with them, and, you know, I never made more than a Volkswagen in my life. So... That was really the. I have to say that being being treated like a star in Los Angeles, California, and Hollywood at the Warner Brothers Studios was about as much fun as a young guy from West Memphis, Arkansas, can have. That sounds like fun to me. I'm telling you, brother. Absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, unfortunately, I, you know, I'm depressed, but I have to leave you now, and <laughs> and and our line is going to going to disappear. But Wayne, okay. it's been great, and I thank you deeply from the heart of my bottom for talking to us like this. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, you know, and I, and I really hope we get a chance to talk together again, and, and uh, I'll definitely stay in touch. You may call me at any time you want to, and we'll just do it again. Okay, Wayne, I'll say goodbye. Go ahead and fry it while you're at it. Okay. Little pig fat, never heard of a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> God bless you all. God bless the BBC. 